You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmas, Warren from Washington, D.C. How are you doing, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, we took a bit of a break on the podcast because of a, a few technical malfunctions, but uh, it's good to be back. Um, a lot's happened in the meantime, I guess. Uh, I should note that before uh, we did this recording today, uh, we actually heard some signs that President Trump is now reconsidering joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, we'll see where that goes. I think there's a few um, obstacles, to say the least, of uh, before the United States could rejoin that pact. Um, but also a few things have happened uh, in the meantime, just, um, I guess, uh, professionally with me. So I actually spent a little time in D.C. last week. Unfortunately, I couldn't run into you, Prashant, uh, but uh, uh, I spent some time on the Hill actually testifying uh, before the U.S.-China Security and Economic uh, Review Commission on the topic of China's views of U.S. alliances. Um, and the hearing was actually, uh, it was it was a good hearing with a lot of great questions, but there was a lot uh, that was in my written submitted testimony that uh, I couldn't really fully get to discuss. Uh, so I thought maybe, Prashant, we could take this podcast today and talk a bit about China's views of U.S. alliances in the Asia-Pacific, something we've talked about before, but maybe we can drill in a bit specifically on the issue of Chinese Communist Party attempts to pursue covert influence in U.S.-aligned democracies. And the two big examples that I think have gotten a lot of really good coverage in in the Western press have been the cases in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and I'll just briefly go over uh, the developments there. Maybe we can talk a bit about um, other other regions in, in Asia as well and, and sort of how this factors into China's strategy as it pursues its uh, great rejuvenation and emerges as a power in its own right in Asia. Does that sound good? Yeah. Cool. Um, so, yeah, let's uh, let's get right into it then. So real briefly, I'll just go over uh, the two big cases in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so actually, I think New Zealand is probably the more interesting case to start with. Um, and here, the work that we primarily rely on is the work done by Anne-Marie Brady, um, whose um, reporting has really showed how the Chinese Communist Party has worked effectively to place a variety of um, pro-China individuals uh, in New Zealand, um, both within the ethnic Chinese community there and outside, um, in across um, the New Zealand government, in within New Zealand politics. And um, Brady further has shown in her reporting that uh, these strategies that the Chinese Communist Party has deployed there have, have um, actually had some impact on New Zealand's foreign policy towards China. Um, she calls this, uh, you know, sort of New Zealand's new no surprises policy towards China and that if there are any disputes or um, points of disagreement that, uh, you know, New Zealand would take this up behind the scenes with China instead of uh, making it more of a public issue. Um, and obviously, I think with New Zealand, um, the level of influence um, is is concerning. And actually, uh, at my hearing, um, Peter Mattis, who does a lot of work on this, uh, actually brought up the point of New Zealand's participation in the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Agreement with Australia, the UK, the United States, and Canada. And if there's concern that, um, you know, certain Five Eyes briefing materials might be making it into, uh, you know, the hands of certain um, people uh, with access to this uh, intelligence, that that could potentially compromise operations. And then in Australia, I think, uh, you know, I, I think this actually got better coverage in the United States, at least, but certainly it was a huge issue in Australia was the incident uh, surrounding um, a former senator from the Labour Party last year, Sam Dastiari, who ended up resigning after a series of revelations uh, showed that he'd received a variety of financial favors from Chinese Communist Party-linked interests. 
And um, especially after a video came out showing him um, giving a speech, basically parroting China's position on the South China Sea disputes last year. So all of this is really, uh, you know, a stirred up concern in the United States where, um, you know, there's also some work going on. Uh, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian at Foreign Policy Magazine is doing a lot of good work on this in the U.S. context, looking especially at the Chinese Students and Scholars Associations on U.S. campuses and their uh, often... Um, nuanced relationships with the Chinese embassies and consulates in this country and how that sort of translates to CCP influence. This is really a, it's an understudied area, but I think uh, more and more it's, it, it's starting to become a topic of greater importance. Um, but Prashant, you know, when you look at the cases in Australia and New Zealand, um, how, so, you know, the question I have is how, how well can China really reproduce this in in other Asian uh, or other states in the Asia Pacific? Because I think, you know, uh, Australia and New Zealand both um, are English speaking democratic states aligned with the United States with significant Chinese diasporas in each case. Obviously, we see similarities in in Southeast Asia, for example. But really, I think the ways in which Chinese influence works in Southeast Asia is a little bit different. Do so you want to comment a bit on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's a that's an excellent way to frame it because I think um, you know the way that um, Chinese influence operations get discussed in the United States is often um, well. I guess there's two kind of major streams, right? One is the sort of you know how does this affect uh, U.S. allies and partners, and the other one is you know we've gotten a bit from Peter Mattis and others. Um, you know, what's the distinction between what the, the Russians are doing and what the Chinese are doing, right? Um, which are kind of the two big stories that are going on. Um, but I think the the question that you pose is interesting, which is, you know, how do we compare this across cases? And it, uh, you can think about it in a couple of ways. One is, I mean, what kind of state are we talking about? Um, as you hinted at in the question, you know, there are these China, uh, U.S. allies and partners that are thinking along the same lines about the United States in terms of, you know, how to combat and how to manage these influence operations. But there are also other countries like, you know, Cambodia is a good example, um, Philippines is another one, where these countries are actually falling victim to these operations. And at times, you know, these influence operations, they're being perpetrated or furthered by interests, whether it's business interests or academic interests or others, um, that are actually, you know, willing to participate in these influence operations and are actually tools of these influence. So I guess that that's one question, which is what is the orientation of the state in, in question? And the other one is, I mean, what kind of vulnerabilities exist in these countries, right? So the Australian case is is notable because, you know, it sort of unveiled a lot of vulnerabilities that were in the Australian political system that, you know, you sort of wonder, I mean, why were those things there, right, in terms of, you know, the ability of, um, you know, f foreign agents to influence and fund political parties and their operations. That's kind of what led to the case that you referenced earlier, right? So there are these innate vulnerabilities in these countries that existed before and China and its influence operations have kind of brought to the fore these weaknesses and vulnerabilities that have existed and I think that's kind of where we're at in the United States now I mean we've been talking about you know influence operations by the Chinese for years um, and there have been lists going around about organizations that are funded by the Chinese that are funded by associations that need to be worried about but you know, the interesting question is, you know, from the U.S. context, you know, why is this only taking place now? I mean, this is something that's been talked about for a long time. And I think you can point to several things. I mean, one is, you know, that there's 
increasing concern about Chinese behavior more generally, right? And influence operations is part of that. But I think the other part of this is you you are seeing a hardening um, response to Chinese activities in this regard, right? Um, and you know this is coinciding with a lot of other trends, including you know what the Trump administration is doing in terms of you know great power competition with China. So there's a lot of angles here that are coming together that I think you know has, as you pointed out, elevated this debate, which I think still remains quite understudied. I mean, you, you, even if you look in the literature for a basic definition of Chinese influence operations, it's very difficult uh, to actually find that. And I think, you know, those distinctions and definitions are, are important when we're talking about this, because, you know, you correctly hinted at in, in, in your original analysis, um, you know, the Chinese are doing a lot of traditional things that other countries do as well. But there are things that they're doing that are very different and worrying, and we should be careful to distinguish between those two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, the newness and how understudied this is are absolutely points well taken. It was something that I emphasized um, again in my in my testimony. Um, I was actually asked to speak about the examples of South Korea and Japan. And actually, I think those examples um, are, are good examples of where we see kind of the traditional tools of statecraft being used towards mm -hmm. coercive ends. Right. I mean, so both of these, you know, um, some people have called this an example of China's, uh, you know, sharp power, quote unquote. I mean, the end goal of this kind of covert influence operation is still ultimately to influence the uh, the uh, the recipient country's foreign policy on issues of Chinese core national interests right so the in the Sam Dastiari case the issue at at the center of it was Australia's indigenous um, a domestic debate about mm -hmm. uh, its own South China Sea policy with New Zealand similarly about how New Zealand would take up um, bilateral issues with China. In the South Korean case, uh, a big case study that I looked at was the coercive episode over THAAD, which we've talked a bit about on, on this podcast before. Um, and uh, some listeners may know that in, um, in October 2017, the dispute effectively re reached a resolution when China and South Korea made a joint declaration via their foreign ministries that they'd come to an understanding, and South Korea emphasized its so-called three no's, where it gave China assurances on the kinds of behavior it would agree to carry out or not carry out within the contours of its alliance with the United States. So I find that to be quite concerning. I mean, I think some analysts took that episode as a sign of China losing the dispute over THAAD, right? I mean, China had made this whole stink about the U.S. deploying a missile defense system, and eventually it caved. The THAAD launchers still sit there in South Korea. But to, to mm -hmm. end the dispute, I mean, South, China, um, uh, South Korea had to say that um, they wouldn't accept any new THAAD launchers, any new missile defense deployments, and they would never join a trilateral alliance with Japan. The trilateral alliance point is an older South Korean point, but the first two, I think, I find concerning um, within the context of the alliance. Um, Japan, I think, is, again, another interesting case because with with Japan, I think, you know, you sort of get into these uh, identity and history issues that make any kind of, um, that I think really limit the level of outreach that China, uh, that the Chinese Communist Party can really undertake, even something like, you know, the Japan Communist Party. I mean, one of the factors that I noticed in my research was that the Chinese Communist Party has historically reached out to um, left, far left parties or communist parties in, in various Asian states to uh, build kind of party to party solidarity. But in Japan, again, this hasn't been a successful vector, right? I mean, the Japan Communist Party, uh, while it's a communist party in name, I mean, still doesn't budge on issues like Japan's 
territorial claims in the East China Sea or anything like that. So they uh, they still have um, divergences there. But there are a few interesting episodes. I mean, uh, you know, Okinawa is a major uh, point of contention between the two countries. Although China mm-hmm. hasn't officially come out and contested Japanese sovereignty over the Ryukyu chain and Okinawa, um, semi-authoritative sources in the Chinese uh, state media have sort of questioned this. But also the Japan Public Security Intelligence Agency in December 2016 came out and said that um, Communist Party linked um, sort of academic groups and universities were carrying out exchanges with um, Okinawan separatist uh, academics. So they were trying to keep this discourse alive in in Okinawa. And it's a very real discourse, right? I mean, China didn't manufacture Okinawan grievances about the U.S. military presence, but it's trying to stoke this in order to um, break U.S. alliances um, in the region. And I think that's really what this all comes down to. Um, this whole conversation about Chinese influence is about China's views of the um, old-fashioned nature, I guess, of U.S. alliances, right? We heard this in Chinese President Xi Jinping's recent speech uh, earlier this week at the Boao Forum for Asia, where we heard the usual boilerplate Chinese language on zero-sum mentality and, uh, you know, Cold War relics of, of these alliances. China really sees, I think, you know, I mean, China recognizes that U.S. alliances are an asymmetric advantage. Uh, China has one treaty ally in Asia, and that's North Korea, not a particularly uh-huh. useful ally in, uh, you know, rising as a great power. Uh, meanwhile, the United States has many. Um, it has allies, partners, and this is kind of the main scenario that I think China feels the need to um, significantly erode if it's going to uh, exert the kind of influence that it wishes to on on the regional order. Um, but, you know, before we move on to that, uh, do you want to talk a bit about the Southeast Asian cases uh, a little more in detail and uh, and your observations there? I mean, what you know, what are the ways in which China primarily coerces and wins hearts and minds um, to uh, influence policy in Southeast Asia? Yeah, I mean, I, I think your your examples there on, on South Korea and Japan really, really hit on you know, the, the key point here, you know, how do we distinguish between the various mechanisms that the Chinese use, right? So one of the things that um, scholars have been paying attention to regarding what the Chinese have been doing with respect to Japan, for example, is, you know, how they use historical narratives and Japan's, you know, role um, in, in terms of its, you know, the sort of wartime role and the atrocities in order to paint this image of Japan as kind of a militaristic power and they use all kinds of tools, including media and, you know, other sort of state directed netizens and things like that in order to perpetrate this image that then undercuts, you know, sort of the U.S.-Japan alliance indirectly. But, you know, other countries do this in different ways, too. They do do this in a less state directed way. They do this um, probably less successfully. Um, and then that's why I think, you know, it, it really is a, a very important task for us to distinguish What's going on uh, what, with what the Chinese are doing versus what other countries are doing? And I think a lot of that is related to the character of the regime, um, but it's also the, the types of behaviors we're talking about, right? So to segue into the Southeast Asian cases, um, you know, after the, the missing uh, Malaysian plane MH370, um, you know, the Malaysian government was extremely surprised by how uh, sort of this fierce, virulent um, Chinese nationalist upsurge very quickly surfaced within, you know, a day or two of the incident that was directed against the Malaysian government, and they made sort of their protest clear about what was going what was going on. But essentially, what the Chinese were trying to do was to um, very quickly react and paint the blame on on the Malaysians and try to affect the Malaysian government's handling of the case. So that is a case where. It's not directed at a you know a, a strict U.S. ally. 
it's not directed at a foreign policy issue, but it's directed at a issue in the bilateral relationship that was very sensitive uh, for Malaysia domestically. And the other one is, you know, I, th I think the Philippines is a, is a very sort of prominent case now with the increasing extent of Chinese penetration into the country, right? So there's been, um, and, and, and again, you know, you have to be very careful um, when you're talking about influence operations because, you know, there are all these lists and stories that come out that, um, you know, sort of purport to create links between the Chinese versus, you know, Chinese government inf uh, individuals versus Chinese government linked individuals that try to undermine certain governments and institutions. But essentially, the, the big picture in the Philippines is that certain academic uh, organizations and think tanks and businesses have been seen as complicit in this sort of Duterte charm offensive directed against China. And the allegation has been made that, oh, well, this must be um, a state-directed campaign by the Chinese. Again, you know, when we see these cases, we have to ask the question, you know, to what extent is China is China pushing on an open door here, right? Right. Because in the Philippines, you know, <laughs> President Duterte has been very forward leaning in terms of uh, some of the things that he's been doing. And a lot of the links that the Chinese are capitalizing on, they're not new. I mean, they they have been building this network of uh, influence in Southeast Asian countries and other countries uh, for, for years. Um, I think it's just bearing fruit now in an increasing way. And I think we're, we're a number of these countries are waking up to that right now. So I think that's that's kind of the other thing I would uh, encourage you know listeners to think about and, and scholars who are working on this to think about because I think in, in the United States, for example, you know there there are all these lists that have gone out about um, you know certain Chinese government or government related institutions that are funding think tanks and then you know or universities and then those universities and think tanks have responded in turn saying well this doesn't influence our research or it does influence our research and I think you know the the, the big thing comes down to um, you know these organizations essentially if they're not to be agents of Chinese influence operations they ultimately have to turn down you know certain kinds of funding and that gets to a whole other issue about, mm -hmm. you know, where's the funding coming from and where else would they get the funding if not from China, right? Like some of these institutions, they're getting this. That It's not ideal, but they're getting it because they can't get it from anywhere else. So there is that broader debate here about how the United States and other countries are funding um, their academic institutions and their think tanks. And the more that, you know, that issue is addressed, um, I think that's a point of vulnerability that can definitely be um, sort of strengthened. Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of really good points. And especially, I think, you know, some of the analytic cautions you raised are really apt in kind of studying this. So, you know, if anybody's listening to this that's interested in this topic and working on it, um, I mean, these are actually really useful points to remain cognizant of. I mean, uh, one of the things we also haven't talked about is, you know, making sure that we always differentiate between, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party and and sort of, you know, ethnic Chinese. And that's been a big issue in this debate, especially in some of the coverage you see domestically in, you know, tabloids and other places like that in Australia and New Zealand. There's all sorts of, um, you know, writing that goes on just kind of skeptical, um, almost almost kind of, a, you know, getting to the point of, you know, McCarthyism in some cases of just certain, you know, if you're if you're ethnically Chinese living in these countries and you happen to voice an opinion about, some of these issues, um, you will be regarded with a certain degree of skepticism. And that's the unfortunate truth with all this. And the parties, um, 
you know, attempts to seek influence abroad have really uh, created this toxic debate. And that's, you know, led to self-censorship in many cases uh, for um, for members of the Chinese diaspora in these countries. Uh, so that's kind of one point of analytic caution is, uh, you know, really making sure that we clarify, you know, who these agents are. You know, are they directly members of the CCP? Are they CCP-linked agents who are Chinese? Are they sort of, you know, non-ethnic Chinese agents living in Australia, New Zealand, other countries in the region who are simply working with these parties? Um, so that kind of clarity, I think, is, is really necessary. Um, Mm-hmm. The other thing you noted about, you know, pushing on an open door, I think, is really apt. I think sometimes, um, at least, you know, it, it seems to be more of an issue in the United States, maybe with people who don't necessarily travel or spend a lot of time in the region, is that, you know, there are people perceive China and what China has to give to um, a lot of Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, is what I'm thinking of here, uh, positively. I mean, they see China as a source of capital, as a source of development. Um, that's even true to an extent in, in South Asia, in parts of the country. Obviously, I think that's changing a bit with the Belt and Road and depending on how heavy-handed China is getting in, in, in some sectors. But, but yeah, I mean, I think th- there's generally a lot of good faith um, pro-China sentiment in a lot of places. I don't think that's necessarily true in in a place like Japan, but but certainly elsewhere in the region, that's, that's very true. And, you know, in terms of what the United States can, can do, um, I think the traditional statecraft cases are a little bit easier to deal with, right? I mean, the Thad mm-hmm. issue was, a, was, I think, a really interesting case and a missed opportunity, primarily, I think, because of the Trump administration's uh, general outlook. I mean, you know, South Korea tried to use the WTO as a venue by which to protest China's um, tariffs, which violate, you know, WTO um, norms and obligations. Uh, that didn't really go anywhere, and that's probably you know partly to do with the fact that the WTO is simply uh, really kneecapped as an organization, and that's not looking better at all. So I mean, you know, when the U.S. talks about the value of a rules-based order, in part, it's also to prevent uh, China from being able to economically coerce um, all of uh, all of these U.S. partner states and allies uh, in the Asia Pacific. But but yeah, I think I, I I think you know I mean going forward this this is really going to be a pernicious problem. Uh, I don't think yeah. this is going anywhere in the next decades. I mean, um, as you know, Xi Jinping said at the 19th Party Congress last year when presenting his work report. I mean, China's national rejuvenation project um, is is well underway, um, and it won't be derailed by you know any kinds of um, you know the uh, the kind of pushback we're seeing right now. Um, but I think yep. understanding how the CCP tries to pursue influence covertly and overtly um, will be more and more important. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to just to add on that, you know, sort of note an analytic caution, I mean, it's important to caution that, um, you know, this can, you know, the overreaction can go the other way too, right? Like in the Australia debate, for example, we've seen um, folks who've raised concerns about uh, Chinese influence operations being portrayed as, you know, racist uh, and, you know, bringing up the the ethnic Chinese point when these individuals have been very careful to specify in their work mm-hmm. and in their arguments that, you know, th- these are Chinese government-directed initiatives and, and that's what they're talking about. So, I mean, that's one angle, but also, uh, you know, if you look at some of these cases, the, the more complex ones, the line between being ethnic Chinese and, and being uh, Chinese government-linked is actually not that clear, right? So the, Sing- uh, the Singaporeans, when they expelled uh, a Chinese academic uh, recently, 
um, for, you know, sort of being a foreign agent and, you know, in, encouraging, engaging in behaviors that were seen to, to threaten the national interest. Um, you know, a lot of Singaporean media outlets carried it as the fact that, you know, this is a, another example of how the Chinese are trying to exploit Singapore as being a majority Chinese state. So the role of ethnic Chinese um, in these countries is is something that I think has come to the fore uh, with these influence operations. Because, you know, let's not forget, right, when the Chinese initially started doing these influence operations, there were, you know, two parts to it. One was, you know, the U.S. allies and partner stuff that we've talked about. But it's also, I mean, they're trying to influence the diaspora internationally too, right? Like they're looking at you know, human rights and democracy activists with respect to Tibet, with respect to Taiwan. Um, and they're trying to look at, you know, how they how can they influence Chinese students at universities to kind of promote the Chinese agenda? So there's kind of two parts to that equation. And that blurs the issue again about the distinction between ethnic Chinese and, and sort of Chinese government related actors. So it is a complex issue. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, this is this is complex. It's messy. It's poorly understood, understudied. Um, we have sort of, you know, case studies in a lot of these countries, but I think putting together a sort of generalized model of how the CCP um, is really going to operationalize this. And really, I mean, is this is this where our energies are best spent even in terms of, you know, this the great, you know, understanding the great power competition that's really going to play out in Asia. Um, mm -hmm. So I think uh, this is something certainly that's that's really popular right now. Right. I think the fact that there was a hearing on the Hill really speaks to that. Um, so I think, uh, you know, in the United States and Australia and New Zealand in Japan to a lesser extent, but, but I think it's getting there. Um, you know, these, these countries will be thinking seriously about, um, about the issue of covert Chinese influence, but I think we'll leave it there for this week. Prashant, what do you think? Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining me as usual. Good to be with you. Great. Uh, for listeners, uh, if you like what you heard on the podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And if you're a subscriber but you haven't left us a rating, please do so on either iTunes or Google Play. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.